Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Uh, for today's episode, we were joined by Rick Edelman. Rick, uh, certainly to listeners in the US, is sort of a household name, but by way of an introduction, he is the founder of Edelman Financial Engines, which is, I think it's fair to say, the, the biggest independent RAA probably in the world, sitting on some $270 billion dollars which is an insane amount of money when you think about it uh, he's also a best-selling author of uh, numerous books on sort of personal finance how to save and invest better um yeah look rick w what a great guest frank really enjoyed having him on yeah highly highly entertaining and uh, what i really liked about him is he's coming at this from the personal finance point of view despite how big he's obviously got and that gives him a different viewpoint than we've had on the show before and and his his you know nuggets should resonate with everyone. It should be applicable to all, however sophisticated you are. Yeah, that's very true. He's not yeah he's not a fund manager. He's not obsessed with you know picking funds. He he sees it I suppose much more from a sort of holistic point of view. I think some of the mistakes he mentioned were very interesting. Less about individual bad investments and more uh, sort of good and bad habits that you can form and 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 sort of the dangers of not forming some of those habits. It's essentially, mistakes of omission, I think, would, would, would be a kind of easy way to typify a lot of the errors that, that he talks about. Yeah, he, de he definitely talks about that. He also had some pretty harsh words about the money management industry, which was really interesting. And I also really liked his views on crypto, given that he is a very prudent person, they might surprise you. Yeah, I, I think we sort of I tried to challenge him a bit on that because they surprised me, frankly. Um, but I, th I think he did a good job of explaining it all. Well, look, I think we've that's enough spoilers before we go into it. So here is the feature movie itself, our interview with Rick Edelman. Rick, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, um, the way we start these podcasts is by asking our guests at the beginning about one or two of their bigger investment mistakes and specifically you know what they then learned from them and the aim of the game here is to, is to learn from our mistakes and so sort of hopefully our, our, our listeners can 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 glean something from that and can invest slightly better as a result of, of hearing these things now you've obviously had a very long and storied career in uh, in, in financial planning and uh, just out of, you know i've obviously read various pieces by you and about you and things but i'm interested to know what mistakes you've made and crucially what what you learned from them well uh, my my um uh first mistake um you know i think most of us you know when we're starting out do it wrong almost immediately and that was certainly my situation when i uh got out of college uh, my first job was as an executive in a uh, nonprofit organization a trade organization in the uh, healthcare field and they had a 403b plan you know there you know it was a nonprofit version of a 401k and i was contributing to that you know it was the, I, that i did right i was contributing to the account uh with a portion of my paycheck and after i left that organization after about two and a half years they said to me what do you want to do with the money i was 24 years old or thereabouts and i said give it to me <laughs> so they did and uh they liquidated the account handed me a check and to this day i can't begin to tell you what i spent the money on but it was gone 
Uh, and of course, I owed taxes plus a 10% penalty on the balance of the account. And that money was frittered away on a 24-year-old's lifestyle. Uh, had I kept that money in the account, had I rolled it over to an IRA and kept it into the stock market, this was in the early 1980s, well, we've had the biggest bull market in American history over the past uh, now 40 years plus, and imagine how much more wealth I'd have accumulated had I left the money alone instead of liquidating it and spending it like a fool. I'd say this though, I mean, it couldn't have been a huge amount of money if it's two, two years no. into your first job, you know. Uh, it was not a huge amount of money, um, but it, you know, the point is that wealth is created by two things, investing and allowing it to stay invested for long term, taking advantage of compound growth. And so I denied myself 40 plus years of compounding at market rates. And although it wasn't a lot of money today, it would be a lot of money. Uh, you know, and that's the, the, the lesson I learned with the benefit of hindsight is that I was smart enough to start early, but I wasn't smart enough to stick with it. Do you think you could have convinced your 24 year old self to, to do a different thing? Yes, had I had better, at that point, I, I wasn't in the financial services industry. At that point, I had no financial knowledge or education or, or experience, and I didn't appreciate the power of compounding, and I didn't understand the exponential growth curve of wealth creation. And so uh, I didn't get it. My attitude was, yeah, I'm only 24. It's not much money. I can use the cash now, because what 24-year-old couldn't. And so I was looking at the immediacy of this windfall. Wow, you mean by quitting this job, I get a I get a check? How cool. I had no idea. Nobody taught me, nobody told me, no one explained to me the implications of that decision and how costly it would prove to be to my future self. So uh, one of the key elements that we now do as part of our financial education uh, is teaching youth. Uh, and one of the things we teach is uh, the story of the penny a day, uh, the story of the doubling lily pond, uh, lily in a pond and the, and the birthday game, all of which teach the impact of compounding because it's easy to learn. And once you learn the incredible importance of saving and letting the money grow for decades, yeah, it's easy to say I'm gonna I'm gonna take advantage of that. So yeah, Frank, I'm convinced that had someone taken the time to pull me aside and say, "Hey, Nimrod, you're making a, a huge expensive mistake," uh, yeah, I think I would have listened. Do you think in in your sort of you know uh, vast experience advising clients and things is is that one of the key mistakes that you've seen? What, what I guess what are, what are some of the other sort of most common uh, errors that you've seen from from clients coming to you? Um, that they've got wrong prior to your prior to your intervention, I suppose. Clearly, that's number one, and we 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 survey clients all the time. We do this as a as a fun question in live seminars. We ask people uh, what their biggest regret is, and everybody always says the same thing: "I regret that I didn't start saving 20 years ago." Doesn't matter how old they are, whether they're 50, 60, 80, 90, 40. Everybody always says, I wish I'd started younger, because now at our older ages, at whatever our current age is now, we appreciate the power of delayed gratification, long-term growth, the diligence, the, the dedication. We realize that, boy, if I could talk, as you said, Frank, to my younger self, uh, I would try to knock some sense into them. Yeah, that penny, that penny has just dropped for me as well, as I'm knocking on my 40s, so... We all say it, we're all guilty of it. In fact, I'll tell you a quick little story. I was doing a seminar years ago 
and a woman came in with her son, her her 13 year old son. People never bring kids to my seminars because you know, let's face it, my subject's boring. Uh, it's only about money, uh, and kids couldn't care less. So she brings this 13 year old into the seminar, and she plants him in the front row with her. And I'm like, oh my lord, this is going to be terrible, dreadful. This kid's going to be bored out of his mind. He's going to be fidgeting. He's going to be a distraction. This is going to be terrible. But he was glued to everything I said. He was taking copious notes. He was laughing at all my jokes. He was totally into it. And at the end of the seminar, I'm not making this up. At the end of the seminar, he walked up to me and he said, man, I should have started when I was 10. <laughs> I wanted to Who was he? Was it, was it Elon Musk or something? <laughs> so, that I mean, child it's grew easy. up to be Bill Gates, yeah. It, it's easy to grasp with the, the concept of compounding. All we got to do is teach it. And the younger you learn it, the quicker you benefit from it. And I was interested, Rick, I know um, maybe you've talked about this a bit before, but reading back the, the, the profile that we did of you a couple of years ago, and you, you spoke of some sort of lean times towards the, um, the sort of earlier part of your career, I get the earlier part of your financial planning career, sort of I think right. after a couple of other roles that you had had. Um, and you sort of talked about, well, you touched on um, credit card debt and sort of not having a TV and how it was good because you weren't sort of constantly being pitched you know, products and sort of a lifestyle that was, you know, essentially unattainable and things. And I don't know if if you had those debts yourself, but you were certainly sort of conscious of, of, of not having them and things. And I guess, is that something that you still see as a sort of a big mistake that a lot of people make? I, it's not so much an investment, I suppose, it's just sort of poor financial planning, but is, is, we is are, debt still a big yeah, issue for you? You're, you're right, Alex. We are a materialist society. You know, we believe very strongly in materialism and we are uh, encouraged on nonstop to buy to purchase, to own, uh, and it is infused in marketing is upon us everywhere. Television was bad enough, but my Lord, now it's the internet and social media uh, and influencers. And there is a huge incentive and motivation for people to uh, encourage us to buy, spend, uh, including money we don't have. And the uh, financial services industry makes it easier than ever. When I got out of college, Banks were closed at Friday at 3 p.m. And if you didn't go to the bank by Friday at 3 p.m. to make a cash withdrawal, you had no money for the weekend because we didn't have credit cards, let alone an ATM. So we couldn't spend money because we literally didn't have it in our pocket. But today, you can easily spend money you don't have thanks to not just PayPal and Venmo, which makes it easy to access and transfer funds, but debit cards. Uh, credit cards, and now pay-as-you-go plans, buy-now-pay-later programs that enable you to buy anything you want, not just dinner, but a big screen TV. Uh, and you can very easily fall into a huge array of debt because you're obligating future income by today's purchases. Uh, and it's, uh, it's much harder to stay away from that trap. My wife and I fell into the ease by not owning a television for four years, we weren't bombarded with the commercial messages. We didn't realize until later how valuable that was for us. But in today's internet world, I don't know how you insulate yourself from the bombardment of buy now, buy now, uh, whether or not you have the money. Don't have the money, no problem. Click this button and we'll provide you the loan instantaneously, uh, whether or not you can repay it. Uh, so it's extraordinarily difficult. It takes a huge amount of discipline and you can't adopt the discipline unless you have the knowledge of why you need to be so disciplined to protect yourself and your finances. And this is why people in their 30s and 40s are in massive amounts of debt to a far greater degree than they ever anticipated in their 20s. 
Oh, Frank, sorry, are you going to come in? Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, so are you a fan of this sort of minimalism that, that's going around at the moment? I see it on my YouTube, minimalist influencers. Don't and like Fire, um, uh, the Financial Independence Retire Early gang. Uh, no, I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of, of extremism in any form. Uh, I think that you can uh, do both. Uh, the key is living within your means. The key is to spend less than you earn. So I'm a big fan of one fundamental uh, financial philosophy, which is pay yourself first. When you get your paycheck, the very first thing you should do with it is set some of that money aside for your own future. Now, if you have a retirement plan at work, you're automatically debiting part of your pay into that plan. That's great. Social Security is an automatic setting aside of money. Wonderful. You should set aside some additional money. 2%, 5% of your pay, doesn't matter the amount, just set aside something, 100 bucks, whatever. Once you've set aside money, you can then take the rest of your money and spend all of it guilt-free. You don't have to live minimalist, you just have to not live beyond your means. And I think that with prudent uh, approach, you can have it both ways. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And on the investment side of things, because I mean, obviously, you know, you've, I imagine once, once you got started in, in, in the career that you're in and obviously obviously you've been very successful you've you've probably practiced what you've preached and stuck to you know good good planning principles have there ever been any sort of have there been any slips on the way where you've gone oh we will put some money into x project or y or into this financial product or that product and for whatever reason it it hasn't worked out or have you avoided that by by sort of i don't know sticking well, to good, uh, no, good old-fashioned principles the, the most expensive mistake that i ever made is that i didn't uh, follow through with my intention in 2014 to invest as much into Bitcoin as I ultimately did invest. Um, I began my research into Bitcoin in 2012, studied it in 2013, began investing in 2014, but because it was so new and so weird and so unproven and uncertain, I didn't invest nearly as much as, of course, with hindsight I should have. Um, what percentage so, did you put in at the time? Oh, at the time it was a uh, it was a, a, a token amount. I mean, it was you know uh, it was not even one percent of our investment portfolio. Um, and uh, had I done even that, even one percent, um, let alone two or three, um, the results, of course, would have been exponentially better, bigger. So um, so yeah, I, you know everybody I talk to in the crypto community who is very well versed in this and, and, and dates back to that, all have horrible stories like mine. I was just talking with someone who was an early miner in 2011 when Bitcoin was 10 bucks. And after mining for two days, he concluded this is stupid and a waste of time because he only got uh, 15 coins worth $10 each, spent two days to do it. And said, "What a waste of time!" And he not only quit doing it, he destroyed the the uh, file that held his bitcoins. Ooh. You hear those kinds of stories everywhere from early people engaged, and so yeah, we all we all love to share our misery. <laughs> it's, yeah, well, those I suppose if he destroyed them, that's good for everyone else because you know less supply, right? Um, so here's a question to. A couple of I and maybe look, you know, I, I don't know you, so so I've got this wrong. But but you, I'm slightly surprised by you being a Bitcoin enthusiast. I suppose maybe because the profile of those involved in that community that I, that I perhaps see on social media and stuff is very different to 
uh, you know, it seems like there's sort of there's a big sort of get rich quick kind of vibe to it. There's yeah. a sort of um, there's a lot I'm of not... hype around it. There's a, your sort of I see you as steady any kind of financial planning head screwed on your shoulders, and it doesn't mesh for me those two things. And I can appreciate that, Alex. And thank you for recognizing that because no, I'm not one of those that you've described. My approach uh, to this is very different, and it is because of my studies in the field of exponential technologies. I've been uh, a thought leader throughout my career looking forward. What, where are we going? What's coming? And it ultimately culminated in my uh, New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, which is a deep dive into exponential technologies. I'm the guy who invented the, the industry's first exponential technologies ETF, which was launched by BlackRock in 2015. And the whole focus of um, exponential tech, you know, dealing with, you know, AI and robotics and 3D printing and uh, machine learning, and nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics, uh, fintech, edtech, uh, and so on. And of course, blockchain uh, technology and by extension, digital assets, including Bitcoin. Uh, I regard these technologies as revolutionary that are impacting every aspect of commerce on a global scale in hugely impactful ways. So to me, it's not a get rich quick thing. Uh, in fact, that's part of the danger. Some of the people playing that game are more problems than solutions because they're putting a black eye on what is fundamentally a very revolutionary technology. So I invest heavily in exponential technologies. I believe very strongly in this and in investing in companies of the 21st century as opposed to companies of the 20th century. And uh, that's why I'm very interested in this entire ecosystem, not merely Bitcoin and Ether and many other digital assets, uh, Uniswap and others and DeFi and, and DAO, but understanding that this is a revolutionary approach to uh, money uh, because of its technological approach and uh, prudent approach with a very small allocation to one's portfolio, 1% is plenty. I'm the guy who invented the 1% Bitcoin strategy years ago. Um, you don't have to make a big bet and you should invest, if at all, and that's a big if, uh, because it's still very risky. You need to have a big risk tolerance, be prepared for lots of volatility and perhaps a crashing going to worthlessness. But if you're going to invest, 1% can have a material impact in your portfolio, but won't hurt you if something goes bad. Um, and it is, I believe, uh, a candidate for consideration in a properly diversified portfolio. So I created the RAA Digital Assets Council Readac as an organization to train financial advisors about Bitcoin and blockchain. Because you're right, Alex, there are too many folks in that space who are giving it the wrong image, that are taking the wrong perspective. There isn't enough adult supervision in the room. And I'm trying to provide a more level-headed approach to help advisors help their clients uh, make right decisions that are in their best interest. Do you think then that there's an entire generation about to make a massive first mistake and possibly last mistake in investing with crypto by going betting the farm on it. Absolutely. And I'll say on the other extreme, Frank, by not doing anything at all. So you've got the two barbells, you know, two ends of the barbell. They're, they're either putting way too much money in this and they're gambling, speculating with silly uh, behavior, or they're doing nothing at all. They are uh, ignoring it. They're denying it. They believe it's nothing but tulip bulbs and beanie babies. And they, are, they believe it's a fad or a fraud that has no basis of legitimacy. Both of those extremists are wrong. Uh, and you don't have to like this. If you have a diversified portfolio, you own a lot of assets you don't like. 
but you do it because that's part of a diversified portfolio. So you should own this as part of a diversified portfolio with a long-term perspective, not as a get-rich-quick point of view. And you shouldn't avoid it because you think it's a tulip bulb or a beanie baby. That too is very silly. It's just the opportunity cost is too massive not to have a little bit in. Yes. Yeah. I mean, with, with whether it's Bitcoin specifically, crypto, or even a lot of the we you mentioned sort of tech that, that you know sort of future tech that that, that could grow exponentially. Obviously, though, you know, in all those things, you're well, you would say we're not early in them anymore. You know, you were really early in two thousand eleven, but you're relatively early in the in the grand scheme of things. And yeah. some of those, you know, picking the right currency is obviously important, or picking the right company that is right. capturing whatever the trend is. Three D printing, you know, not all of them are gonna. Um, you know, have a great time of it. One, one or two might. So it's it, you know, obviously that there are risks involved in it. How yes. have you? Has that always worked out for you? Because I, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's still quite high risk investments. If you look at someone like right. I know Kathy Wood is sort of the poster child, yes. grown up for this style of investing at the moment, anyway. And and obviously sometimes it goes really well. Al, the last year sometimes. Uh, not I'm, so a big well. fan of, I'm a good friend and a big fan of Kathy's uh, and uh, and also Louise over at Global X uh, and. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of the Kencho funds at State Street. Um, these, all these thematic uh, funds focusing on exponential technologies, I think makes sense. And they go about it in the right way. Diversification, because you said it correctly, Alex, you know, the airline industry is here to stay, but Pan Am and Eastern and Braniff are all gone. Uh, hundred years ago, there were 200 automobile manufacturers in the United States. Today, there are three. So it's easy to say that the industry will survive. It's hard to pick the winners of the industry. And that's why I believe in uh, ETFs, because I get a basket of these. You can now own a basket of digital assets. The Bitwise Top 10 Crypto Index Fund gives you a basket of the top 10 by market cap. I'm an investor in Bitwise because I believe strongly in the work that, that Hunter Horsley and, and Matt Hogan are doing there. Uh, and I don't like to make big bets. I don't mind being aggressive, but I, I don't mind uh, investing in an aggressive way, provided I can do so in a prudent approach. Diversification provides that a long-term view helps to uh, reduce the impact of short-term volatility. So uh, there are ways where you can invest prudently without um, being rashful. Yeah, okay, you haven't sort of, you know, yeah, avoided too many sort of single stock blow-ups where, you know, whatever it is. Warren Buffett said it best. Better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. He says he's very good for quotes, Buffett. I've noticed this. He is. A lot of wisdom there from that guy. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, but, but even then, taking that diverse approach, you know, using the ETF, whether to get exposure to the tech companies or, or, or to cryptos and stuff, that's still a relatively small portion of your yeah. well, portfolio or, or, or an increasingly I, it, large it, portion? Well, it's all relative. Uh, my allocation uh, to the digital asset space is higher than I would probably advise others, but that reflects a combination of my knowledge, uh, experience, interest level, and financial ability. Um, so I don't know that I would recommend others to do what I'm doing, uh, but I believe that for Jean and me, my, my wife and I, it's, it's, uh, it's appropriate for our circumstances. And investing should always be based on that, your personal circumstances, goals, needs, risk tolerance, uh, and future uh, objectives. No, that yeah, that makes sense. And you've, I've sort of noticed this. The mistakes that you've um, flagged here for us are so far have been mistakes of omission. So sort of mistakes of, you know, I wish I had invested in this, and yeah. I wish I'd left my money in that by taking it out. I guess 
not to put too fine a point on it, are there ones of mistakes of putting money in the wrong place, or do you think you've generally? Oh, I, I, you know, in the world of exponential technologies, uh, there you're always uh, going to find young startups, you know, angel investing, uh, venture capital that don't pan out. Um, so uh, yeah, there are some investments that have underperformed, but that's all part of the game. Um, and so that I don't, I wouldn't consider that a mistake. You know, just because you lose money in an investment doesn't mean you've made a mistake. And that's a common error that investors make. They, they engage in Monday morning quarterbacking. They lament the past. You know, if I had known today, or if I had known then what I know today, I wouldn't have done that. Well, you didn't know it then. So don't beat yourself up for making a reasonable decision at the time based on available information. I mean, nobody knew about the pandemic. Does that mean people who invested in 2019 were foolish? Nobody realized that after the market crashed in the pandemic, 35% in six weeks, that it would immediately rebound. You didn't know it at the time. You made a prudent decision based on available information, and it was the right decision at the right time. So um, you can't beat yourself up over that, or you'll never invest, and you'll always be filled with regrets, and that's no way to live. Uh, were there any, uh, no, absolutely not, but, but were there any of these investments that didn't pan out that particularly hurt? Maybe something you had a soft spot for, from an emotional standpoint, you were invested in it, and, and it hurt, it cut. Uh, no, and it's important that you don't position yourself for that, meaning investing is only, it's money, you know, and it, I often find investors say, I love that stock. Hey, guess what? That stock doesn't love you back. It doesn't even know your name. Um, so you shouldn't have a relationship with your investments. This is a business decision and you should have a card cool view of it. One of the best ways to learn this example is the TV show um, Pawn Stars. Uh, I interviewed them on my TV show on PBS years ago. And if you watch Rick, um, the owner of the pawn shop uh, in Vegas, he effusively talks about how there's an, a, an item he's being offered to buy. And he loves this thing. He would love to own it. He would kill for this. And then he discovers he can't buy it for the price he wants. And he walks away. He doesn't let his emotional desire of ownership exceed his business sense of buying, paying too much for something, even though he loves it. And, and more of us could do well by following that same behavior. Yeah, that but, sounds like great discipline. Would you say you're good generally at sort of divorcing your emotions from investment? We say we the first episode we did of this, we always talk about it a bit, maybe too much with, with Daniel Crosby. I don't know if you're familiar with with, with his work, sort of behavioral finance I'm a huge fan of, of, the, of that subject yeah and he sort of talked about you know if you're excited about it or what was it if I forget, right basically if you're excited both positively or negatively you know it's probably it's a, a bad, bad decision you want to be like fully neutral going into a thing do you would you say you're you you can pull that off at, the, at this stage uh, well i like to say that but all of us are victims of the behavioral finance biases that we are all guilty of uh, and I, I've written extensively about behavioral finance uh, and done many, many seminars on, on this what I call Mind Over Money um, to help people realize that we make these mistakes. We make them subconsciously. We make them intuitively. Uh, we make them autonomously, and we don't even realize we're doing it. And it causes us to lose lots and lots of money. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, so it's easy to say, yes, I, I'm good a, a, about not doing that, but not, that's wrong. We, we all do it. Um, and we have to 
recognize that fact. And that's why we all need a sounding board. We all need our own counselors and advisors to error check us, to make sure that we're not about to do something really foolish. Um, so who do you turn to in, in that situation? Uh, colleagues of mine at the firm uh, and my wife um, um, are um, how I uh, do my best to uh, protect myself. Um, and I do have enough training in this business that I, I, I like to think that I can usually point out when I'm about to do something foolish uh, or wrong. Um, but I know that I'm guilty of rationalization uh, and um, what's called mental accounting, um, making decisions based on a weird set of analysis to justify the decision you want to reach. You want to get to, we yeah. All do, we all do those things. You know, oh. We're all guilty of proud Papa syndrome and uh, optimism and pessimism and catastrophizing and small sample size representative bias and, you know, and anchoring and endowment bias. We're all guilty of these things. So knowing about them doesn't usually, uh, doesn't always help prevent it, but at least it helps us understand why we just did that dumb thing. That makes sense. I've got one more question, if that was all right, Rick, and then, and then, then we'll let you go, which was the money management industry itself, so sort of asset management, wealth management, RAAs, you know, particularly in America, but I suppose, suppose do you think that it does a, a good enough job of, 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 of trying to help people, you know, make intelligent financial decisions and things? Absolutely think, not. Absolutely not. And not only does it not do a good job, it doesn't even try. In fact, it does the exact opposite. It works very hard using behavioral finance to manipulate people uh, for their own best interest as opposed to the customer's best interest themselves. In most organizations, there are four stakeholders. The shareholder, uh, the management, the staff, and the client. And the client is typically dead last in most organizations. Uh, companies are generally doing things that maximize their shareholder value at the expense of everybody else. Uh, and it's a very sad commentary, but let's face it, the financial services industry has one of the worst reputations in all of uh, industrial uh, corporate uh, activity worldwide. And that negative reputation, that bad reputation is unfortunately very well deserved. Um, in fact, some people would say that, you know, I'm not a customer of my bank. I'm their hostage because I have no choice but to work with these banks uh, and with credit card companies and insurance companies uh, and uh, too many, too often, brokerage firms. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the fiduciary standard does not generally apply to most participants in the financial services industry. They are not obligated to serve their client's best interest, and they don't. In fact, they have, an, they have a fiduciary obligation to their shareholders. And that's whose best interest they're serving. So I guess as a shareholder, that's wonderful, which is why I encourage people, if you want to win in this game, be not a customer, be a shareholder, because that is how you will have your best interest served. Excellent. Well, that was our interview with Rick Adamman. And yeah, look, Frank, as, as we said at the beginning, I think loads of really interesting stuff there. Yeah, a, a lot. I, he's he's very much a cynic, isn't he? Uh, he's he's a cynic of of consumerism for the sake of it, you know, blindly buying stuff and and what that can do to your finances. He's also, as I mentioned at the top, he's cynical of the asset management industry as a whole for for pushing products. Again, another form of consumerism. A lot of it's about awareness. You know, me as me, the investor, am I being sold to right now? You know, in any walk of life, do I actually need what, what I think I, I should be buying? I find it interesting that, you know, despite that viewpoint, 
you know, he, he wasn't a fan of the sort of wave of minimalism that's sweeping social media at the moment. And instead he thinks there is a happy medium to, to getting what you want, but also showing some restraint at other times. Yeah, I thought I thought that was an interesting contrast. I thought I also thought there was an interesting contrast whereby, you know, he he's he is planning focused, he is cynical about the money management industry pushing product, pushing fans. But at the same time, he himself is a big fan of both, you know, obviously crypto, which some people would would call a bit of a fan at the moment, but also these kind of higher higher risk, more speculative uh, sort of growthy tech funds, um, which again, you know, obviously over the last year have been uh, something that everyone's piling into. You know, we in the US, we you know, go a week without someone trying to launch a sort of a Cathy Wood lookalike type fund. Um, so I thought there's a little bit of a contrast there, but I thought he explains it quite well as to as to why he, you know, why he's okay with that. Yeah, I think I think the crypto thing, from a personal point of view, this is something that percolates through my mind a lot. You know, should I be investing a little bit in it? And when someone is sort of, head screwed on as as rick says yeah you know that that percent a month or percent a year as it were is 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 a probably a pretty decent idea i mean if you can afford to lose it all the potential upside is so much more than the downside as long as you don't invest too much can we just say quickly for the regulators listening obviously nothing in this podcast is regulated investment or financial advice <laughs> uh, frank is not suggesting that you do this we're just discussing it um, and, and, and another another point that i liked and i think uh, this from a mental health perspective is if you make a mistake don't beat yourself up about it you know you should should you made the mistake for a reason and you can't let it dissuade you from future investments yeah, I agree with that. And sort of, you know, the process was right, the decision was right at the time. I would say this, it's easier said than done. You know, it's depending on the size of the loss. It's, you know, if you could, it's, it, I think it's easier for rich people to say, hey, look, the process was right, this didn't work out, but they're still fine. I think when it's a bigger portion of your money or what have you, it, it can be harder. It's an obvious point, but I think. Yeah. Um, that's true. Yeah, I, the crypto thing I think is very interesting. Um, he's obviously a huge fan of it, obviously really believes in it. As we said in the interview, he doesn't strike you as someone who sort of fits the, uh, perhaps the crypto, the, the typical crypto identity. Sort of, there's no laser eyes on Twitter. There's no sort of, you know, bullish statements every, every time there's a huge price rise and things. But um, again, coming at it from a slightly different place, but seems to articulate the argument well. I'm still nervous about that. I'm not sure I put money there. You seem keen. Keen. I'm still thinking about it. Crypto curious, isn't that what? That's yeah, crypto curious. Yeah. Excellent. Um, look, that was our interview with Rick Edelman. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.